Hi Teamsters, I'm Carrie Ann. And I'm Allison, and this is Podcast Without an Audience. Where two friends pick two topics and find intersections. Or not. Hey, hey. Hey, hey. Happy Tuesday. Happy Thursday listening day, hopefully. <laughs> um, we are doing stuff a little bit different this week, aren't we? We sure are. Why don't you tell our Teamsters what we're doing this week? Oh, guys, we are switching it up because do you know what's really important? Mental health. Being inspired. That too. I think sometimes we sit down, like for me at least, I have a list of topics on my phone that I really want to get into, some mm-hmm. of which is like too big to accomplish in the amount of time that I have left myself to write my notes. Um... And so last night I sat down to, to cover this really big topic and I was like, I just don't have time to do this justice. Yeah. So I called you and I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> and um, you had a brilliant idea. Thank you. Thank you. Um, necessity is the mother of changing plans. Uh-huh. And we uh, decided to do a cult episode as a regular episode, sort of. Yeah. Question mark. So we're doing kind of a cult slash regular episode hybrid situation. A little shrimp basket combo. <laughs> and so I will be covering a movie. Mm-hmm. And Allie will be covering a cult. That's correct. Uh, the movie that I'm covering, we're actually getting into the psychology a lot more than we normally do for a cult episode. So little, you know, overlap there. And then we may or may not do intersections depending on what cult Allie picked. Perfect. Oh, we know we don't get to do. Maybe that. this is the week we do intersections with our oh, cults and cult classics. Oh, see, I knew, you know, it just, it's working out. <laughs> I'm a big fan so far. Me too. I think it's good to feel inspired. And if your topic is, it just isn't working, I mean, do you feel that way sometimes when you sit down to write? A thousand percent. Normally, I just, um, either pick something that I'm less inspired about. And I feel like people can tell that I'm just not quite as into it as other times with like inspiration porn, which was Mm -hmm. my very favorite topic to have covered so far. I think, um, where I just had pages and pages of notes. Yep. So that was a good one. Thank you. And very Um, important too. Yeah. So I like some weeks I know without a doubt, like I know on Monday what I'm going to be writing my notes about and I'm gearing up for it all week. Mm hmm. And then other times I sit down, like, the morning of, and I'm like, I have no idea what we're going to talk about today. Yeah. I feel the same way. (laughs) We also have Obi running around, and normally he's not invited to these parties. So we might be intervening to... uh, He just keeps running into things. He's a big boy. Literally today, I picked him up from daycare, because Ray is at a conference this week, and so... I didn't. I wasn't going to have time to let him out during the day, so I took him to daycare. It was thirty two dollars. I was like, "What the actual mm-hmm. fuck?" Mm-hmm. But anyway, he literally walked into the glass door, like just like bonked his head, hit his big old head on the glass door. I was like, "Poor baby, he doesn't get out of the house. He doesn't know how doors work." It's hard to be a puppy in a human world. Mm-hmm. What else is going on with you? 
Well, it's finally sweater weather. Oh my God, thank God. And I'm super excited for that. In fact, everything on my person today is from my mother from the 80s. I know that's your mom's sweater. So this is my mom's sweater. These are also my mom's jeans. Really? From like the... No, could not have been from the 80s. Maybe mid to late 90s. Mm-hmm. Um, her scarf. Cute. Thank you. This is... Your Cindy for Halloween. <laughs> I love that. I've been picking up a lot of extra stuff at um, thrift stores and vintage stores lately. You did. You found a really cute dress the other day. I did. I can't wait to see it. It's super cute. I wore it to work today. Aw. I got lots of compliments on it. I bet. It looked beautiful in the pictures. (laughs) I wonder if you can hear him snarving. (laughs) (laughs) Is he... He He's just snoring already. He's just breathing? He sounds like a pig. He's looking up at me with his big brown bulgy eyeballs you know i always wanted a pig growing up like i wanted to actually own a pig and i think i finally have one i think you do too i also hate that we did not think through the fact that all of our pets names rhyme yeah that how did that not how i just (laughs) never once considered it it. not even once no um but just now obi knocked over a gate yeah and i just instinctively looked at him and said moby Mm mm-hmm like, how dare you continue to get in trouble? It was, in fact, Obi. It was Obi, yeah. And not Moby. Nope. Nope. And Dolly and Ollie are just... Oh, it's ridiculous. Delightful. How on earth have we... How did we do this? How did we do this? Why did we do this? Unclear. Um, before we jump into it, I don't know if you have heard, but they are making a new Helen Keller movie that I would like to tell you about for no, a second. No, I didn't know. So, you know the actress from A Quiet Place? The the deaf actress. The daughter? Yeah. Uh Her name is Millicent Simmons. Mm -hmm. And she has been cast in the role of Helen Keller. Oh, cool. Which at first, very, very cool. Deaf actress playing a deafblind character. Mm -hmm. Uh, Until you... You're going to ruin this for me. (laughs) Well... It's just been such a hot topic in the deaf community, like the past two weeks, Mm -hmm. that I forget that people in the hearing world just don't even know that this is a conversation that's going on. Mm -hmm. And I love thinking about how all these conversations are happening in these different communities that we don't know anything about. So I want to take a minute and share it with you. Absolutely. Educate me. Educate us. Because one of my good friends, uh, Vanessa, Mm -hmm. was recently interviewed by Forbes magazine. Oh, wow. Um, Vanessa is a deafblind, non-binary individual. Mm -hmm. Um, they have a, they do astrology. Mm -hmm. So they like sell classes and do, um, astrology chart readings and interpretations. Um, they're huge in the deaf community with this work, Mm -hmm. but they were one of the first people to come out and say, wait a second, you're hiring a deaf actress to play a deafblind character when there are valid deafblind actors out there who could play this role Mm -hmm. and why are we not considering that like moving forward if we're deconstructing ableism that's Mm -hmm. great but marley matlin and millicent simmons are like the only two deaf actors that most people know i mean there's a few others there's like shoshana stern um and the guy who played Super Deffy, whose name I don't remember right this second. It'll come to me in a minute. But, like, this would be a great opportunity to elevate deafblind people's voices. Mm-hmm. So I just thought it was so cool that Forbes magazine was just like, let's dive into this and let's have these conversations. And this is important. 
So they were able to address those topics with the with the magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So Millicent has now like released a statement um, and basically like they tried to justify it saying that they have a or she tried to justify accepting the role saying that she has a deafblind relative. Mm -hmm. So she has more insight than other actors may have. And there is this like hint of, you know, it's good. Like we need deaf actors and deaf roles. Um, like this is a step in the right direction, but it's not quite enough. And I just think it's such a fascinating conversation to be having. So I just want to share it with you because I mean, I'll probably still go and see the movie. I'm certainly not boycotting it. Mm-hmm. Unlike the movie music with oh, Sia yeah. that was about <laughs> the autistic character uh-uh. and they did not hire an autistic actor. No. And no, that was problematic in so many other ways, <laughs> but yeah, just fascinating. Yeah. Like, especially this opportunity for deafblind people's voices to be elevated. Mm-hmm. So um, go check out Vanessa on Instagram. Their handle is um, Astro Woke and uh, Outlandish Force. So maybe mm. we can find a way to like share some of their content this week. Dripping with Vanessa. <laughs> I always think about that when I hear their name. I know. Me too. Talented art- artist too. Oh my God. So talented. So um, Vanessa is also a painter mm-hmm. and paints these beautiful galaxy photos or like big galaxy paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I just wanted to share because I think that stuff like that's fascinating Mm -hmm. and certainly goes into psychology and history. And today we're going to be talking about movies. So link up there. Link up in all those places. Yeah, I think it's important to note that like, although we're making progress, we're not quite really where we need to be on a lot of things. So just kind of keeping moving. Let's move it forward. Yeah. Um, I could not agree more. And let's deconstruct ableism in all the ways. There we go. Amen. I uh, was recently reading about internalized ableism and Mm -hmm. felt very called out. I'm going to have to do some work on that now. So that'll be a whole other episode. I think um, that is one of the topics that people feel maybe less aware of. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's talked about a lot less. Yeah. It's not a part of conversation every day. Yeah. Yeah. No, I totally agree. And then within the deaf community, there's ableism, but there's also autism, not -hmm. to be confused with autism. Right. Um, And autism is the belief that, or often an internalized belief, that um, people who are deaf or hard of hearing are inherently less than people who are hearing Mm -hmm. and cannot and should not be able to do the same things. Mm -hmm. So we'll get into that more later, too. Ugh. Another day, though. Like, yeah. not today. Today, okay. Ooh, we're today. talking Ooh. about Edward Scissorhands. <laughs> Ooh, link up with ableism, because we're going to be talking about ableism, too. Yeah. Oh, so speaking of scissors. Uh, I'm sorry. Speaking of your puppy. Oh, let's see. Hi. Would you like to get down? Did you just put a full glass of water on my bed? <laughs> it's only half full. It's <laughs> okay. Full. Nothing could go wrong. Well, my hand doesn't okay. reach that way. I'm just hearing excuses. <laughs> um, okay, Mom. I saw a giant pair of scissors today. Speaking of scissors, hands. It was like one of those that you used to cut ribbon, and it was actually like a very sharp, large scissor. Huh. Yeah. Just... Where did you see these work? scissors? <laughs> okay. Yeah. 
I just had that realization that we were talking about scissor hands and I saw a large pair of scissors. Anyway, moving on. You should take a picture and we can post it on the gram. Oh, okay. Yep. That will be our teaser Wednesday because we did Ooh. not have a teaser Tuesday today. No, we did not. Though if you are hearing this and there was no picture of scissors, then that's okay too. Yeah. We'll see how tomorrow goes. All right. So today we are going to be talking about Edward Scissorhands, which admittedly I was 99% sure I had seen before, though I remembered so little of this movie, I'm not actually convinced I'd ever watched it. Really? Mm-hmm. But it's totally a me movie. Oh, yeah. Which is maybe why I was convinced I'd seen it before. It's one of those things that you see and then it goes one of two ways. Either you're like, all right, I'm good for a while. Mm -hmm. Or you watch it like three times a year forever. Oh, it's about to be a major repeat for me. Um, It was soothing. It was interesting. Like each of the characters could be psychoanalyzed. Mm -hmm. And I noticed something. Tim Burton's style has not evolved very much. You're right. He hasn't changed much. And this is like his second or third major film. Mm -hmm. Um, He'd done Beetlejuice, which is also kind of this gothic fairy tale vibe. Um, But you're right. The color palette kind of stays the same. The characters. This is the first one where he works with Johnny Depp. So he's like finding actors who fit his vision Mm -hmm. for the different roles. But they're very stereotypical. They're very much him. Like he's got... It's just the thing. It's like his vision, his world. It's almost like all of these, all of his movies that he directs happen within the same place at different times. Yeah. Or like next door. It's all, it's all like you could argue that it all exists in the same world. Yeah, you absolutely could. And they seem to exist outside of time. Like, there were Mm -hmm. elements of this movie that felt like 1930s all the Mm -hmm. way up to, like, the 1980s. Yeah. Based on, like, uh, different car models and the ways the houses were structured and some of the things that were said. But there was also a lack of technology. And the Avon reference very clearly feels like the 50s or early 60s. Yep, for sure. Um, But they seem to just kind of exist in their own universe. Yeah. And his um, leather outfit is, is very, like punk steampunk steampunk johnny yeah Yeah. um it is important to note that one thing that tim burton has said previously is that he does not feel like people of color can fit into his imagination like his characters he feels like they just don't have the right features what yeah what the fuck does that mean so there's a little racism there just something to be aware of i think oh i hate that i super hate it um he there is one black character in this film Mm -hmm. it's a police officer yeah Yeah. um but other like all of his animate animated characters very obviously have white features he just says he doesn't feel like black features are more common features or like like he can represent them maybe both Okay. Well, I hate all of it. Yep. That is not at all what I wanted to hear. I'm so sorry. Um, That's horrible. Yeah. It's not great. There was then later a TikTok trend where people were like making themselves into Tim Burton characters to show that anyone could be animated in that style. Of course they can. Yeah. Of fucking course they can. Yeah. So like with the strong cheekbones and the thin noses, like 
you know, trying to figure out what face shapes and whatnot could look like for different people. Because he does have this very specific type of art, especially in his animated movies. Like the claymation? Yeah. Yeah, but it's literally a made-up world. You could make anything fit. Yeah, exactly. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, I yeah. So, let's get into Edward Scissorhands, and we will divorce it from... Hi, Obi. Uh, we will divorce it from Tim Burton for now. I can't, but okay. We'll try. Kind of like we've done with J.K. Rowling and Harry Potter. Touche. Yep. So a brief synopsis for those of you who have not seen Edward Scissorhands, um, or you can pause this and go watch Edward Scissorhands right now. But in a castle high on top of a hill lives an inventor's greatest creation, Edward, a near complete person. The creator died before he could finish Edward's hands. Instead, he left, he is left with metal scissors for hands. Since then, he has lived alone until a kind lady called Peg discovers him and welcomes her him into her home at first everyone welcomes him into the community but soon things start to take a change for the worse um to start things off because we've got to figure out why we decided to use this as like a cult film so we're going to start with the box office because once we get past kind of all this stuff we'll get into the real meat of the movie Mm -hmm. so the team decided to not aggressively promote the movie in ways that other movies at the time had been promoted like et spent millions on promoting it um and then killed it in the box office the director said um we have to let it find its place we want to be careful not to hype this movie out of the universe edward scissorhands was uh released on december 7th 1990 in a limited release in the united states and then a wide release came later on december 14th Mm. Uh, The budget for this movie was about $20 million, and in the first weekend, it grossed about $6 million, and in the first weekend worldwide, it grossed $86.2 million. Oh, wow. So, it it actually did really well in the box office. Mm -hmm. The film is considered a box office success, and the New York Times wrote, quote, the chemistry between Johnny Depp and Winona Ryder, who were together in real life at the time. Really? Yep. From 1989 to 1993. Wow. I I did not know that. I did not know that either. Uh, Gave the film team idol potential, drawing on younger audiences. So, this was... Like Bella and Edward. Exactly. (gasps) Yeah. This was the Bella and Edward of the time. Wow. Also, this was like, it came out like a month before I was born. Yes, it did. Um, and there are a lot of things that would have, that would have been really appealing to young audiences about this movie, like not just the architecture and like some of the themes, but also the, um, like Johnny Depp as Edward Scissorhands or otherwise is just an attractive being. Mm -hmm. And so is Winona Ryder. Like, oh yeah. What I find interesting about this movie is with some of the themes, it has really stood the test of time and done well and continues to have an impact even years and years later. Mm-hmm. Like when so many other movies from the early 90s have or late 80s have kind of fallen by the wayside, this one is still one that routinely comes up. Um, people still talk about it. People still care about it. Yeah. So we're going to talk about why. 
I do want to know how he gets his outfit on every day. His leather outfit? Mm -hmm. I think he just sleeps in it all the time. Because remember, he's a robot. He's not a human. So he doesn't need to, like, change his clothes because he doesn't sweat. Or pee. Or pee. Because I had that thought, too. But he literally has a cookie for his heart. So to start, um, we should probably share a quick origin story because it's relevant. This movie was inspired by a drawing of Tim Burton's from when he was a kid. Mm-hmm. So as a kid, he drew a thin, solemn man with long, sharp blades for fingers. Tim Burton explained that the character represented him in his teenage years, and the film represents much of his time growing up. He likened his growing up to suburbia to a Frankenstein movie, with the suburbanites acting as the angry villagers. Mm. Burton also stated that he was often alone and had trouble retaining friendships. Quote, I get the feeling people just got this urge to want to leave me alone for some reason, and I don't know exactly why. End quote. Probably because you're drawing slender men with blades for fingers. <laughs> if like, I had to guess. Timmy, what is this you're drawing? <laughs> Mummy. Yeah. It's a slender man. I do, I do like how he's equating the Frankenstein with suburbia, though. Mm-hmm. Because Frankenstein is ultimately like a really sad story. I don't know if you've read it. I have. Um, of course you have. But I, yeah. It's it's a, it's about belonging and um you know fitting in and finding love and partnership but um yeah I think you see kind of how messy suburbia can be and how like empty it can be Absolutely and this movie actually has a lot of overlap with Frankenstein especially as we start to deconstruct it mm-hmm. So like we have the inventor versus the doctor and his monster mm-hmm. um so, small pet peeve of mine is people calling Frankenstein the monster. Mm-hmm. Frankenstein is the doctor. Mm-hmm. So, um, but his monster is what the story is really about. Just like Edward Scissorhands is really about the creation of this inventor. So, this movie was more than just Burton's like early major film production. It also has a pretty significant relevance for his own life. Burton is clearly establishing his role in the film production world with this gothic fairy tale, a genre that he, like we said, practically invented and has certainly perfected. And it's also a suburban satire that points out issues of classism, diversity, disability, moral decay, social change, and a word that I really like, um, suburban vapidity. Hmm. Yeah. Like a vapid, yeah, yeah, suburban house mom, suburban vapid, vapidity. <laughs> it's gonna be a fun word to say. Good thing it's nowhere else in my notes. <laughs> so let's start at the very beginning. A very good place to start. When you read, you begin with ABC, and here we're gonna start with the mansion versus the suburbs. So the mansion and its inhabitants. So inhabitants being the inventor and Edward Scissorhands um, are pretty devoid of color. Like the house itself is black. Everything around it is black. They wear dark clothing. Um, There's, it seems like there's little life around them until you start to look more closely and you see the gardens, which are really beautiful Mm -hmm. and the time and love that Edward put into them. And this is meant to be kind of the opposite of what the suburban neighborhood represents. 
So we can see this kind of as a connection to the old ways and individualism, creativity, even um, like Victorian Eric. Yeah. Victorian era Gothic mm-hmm. architecture. A little Gothic revive happening. It, yeah, exactly. It's the sense of we are um, full of life up here, but you don't see it right away. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the suburban area, the colors are everywhere, mm-hmm. but they're kind of faded. Mm-hmm. And one article said that this could represent like a faded optimism. Of the middle class. like Nothing is what you think it will be. Exactly. And people may have once been really happy in these homes, but they certainly don't seem happy now. Like, even in the early scenes with um, Peg going around trying to sell Avon, no one wants to buy Avon from her. Mm -hmm. Like, she, they all have this false sense of happiness, but you can see pretty quickly that they don't actually care about each other. Yeah. They're not as happy as you would expect the middle class to be, which is the ideal in the 1950s and 60s. Um, There's also the sense of worker homogeny, like all the cars pulling out of the driveway at the same same time. time. Like there's a collectivist idea. We all do this together. If one person starts to do something that deviates, we call each other up Mm -hmm. and we all go and address it together. Yeah. Um, so not only are we contrasting color schemes and types of houses and individuals within the houses, we're also kind of taking a deeper look at suburban happiness versus isolation. And I think it's also like managing expectations too, because like if you're, everybody is like playing a part and Mm -hmm. like playing a role and they're doing all these things in sync, but not out of, I don't know, it's performative and they're doing it all together and it's just like what's expected of them. It's super performative. That's a great word for it. And we see that more as Edward like comes down and starts to get integrated and they just try and make him fit into. Mm-hmm. Oh, he looked so cute. The suspenders. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and he cuts them with the scissors and she pins them together. She's such a sweet character. She is super sweet. So, like, so good. Yeah. Good heart. Yeah, absolutely. She Um, seems to be, like, the beacon of light. She, I feel like, hasn't lost herself so much. It seems to me like she's doing the Avon thing because she wants to. Right. I think she is also genuinely looking for connection. Mm -hmm. Like, she is looking for... Um, an opportunity to have something more meaningful and deeper than anyone else around her is interested in. And doing what's right, yeah. despite what other people will think. Mm-hmm. And you can tell she still falls into some of the traps of the suburban mom. Um, like, she's not perfect, mm-hmm. but I think she her heart's in the right place, and she definitely tries harder than anybody else mm-hmm. to just, like, accept him for who he is. Yeah. From the first, you know, 30 seconds mm-hmm. that she meets him. So in contrast with this, like, homogeny, we have Edward who shows up and is immediately othered. Everyone is a t- everyone in town is either repulsed by him or intrigued by him and, or starts to objectify and sexualize or, him. Yeah. Um, At first, we kind of see him as a monster or someone to be feared. And then we realize that maybe he's not. No one can really figure him out because he's so unlike 
anything that they have ever experienced or anyone they've ever experienced. At the end, he is forced into being a monster because no good deed goes unpunished. Mm. So at the end, um, spoiler alert, I think always for our cult or cult-ish episodes. Um, But at the end, Edward is essentially forced to kill his crush's ex-boyfriend, crush slash foster sister's Mm -hmm. ex-boyfriend, Jem. Jem tries to kill Edward. Edward ends up stabbing Jem and pushing him out of a window, um, which turns him into the monster that everyone kind mm, of expected was him to be. waiting for him to be. Yeah. yeah. Think Alphaba and Wicked. Mm, hashtag Halakonomenomena to not Nalakonoma. <laughs> <laughs> exactly that. <laughs> um, Dolly's here too, by the way. Everyone's here. If only Ollie and Moby were here, then we could really have the whole crew. Yeah. <laughs> um, like we talked about earlier, many people have likened Edward to Frankenstein's monster in both movies or in both pieces of media. The protagonists are seen as monsters and Frankenstein. It was the doctor and not his monster who was truly the monster. Mm hmm. And the same is true in Edward Scissorhands. It's the town that ends up being evil and mm-hmm. the monster and that forces him into this role. Um, another thing that really stood out to me is disability. So we're going to do a deep dive into a disability conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order to do so, we really do have to come back to the social model of disability we see Edward's visible physical disability with his lack of hands or mm-hmm. scissors for hands. Mm-hmm. The family watches him as he's learning to like navigate their world. He tries to put clothes on. Mm-hmm. He stabs the waterbed. He can't pick up his food. Um, all of those things. So the social model of disability says that people are disabled by barriers in society, not by their impairment or difference. So, if you have other questions about the social model of disability, you can refer back to our inspiration porn episode for more on that. But what's interesting here is that it's very much inspiration slash disability porn. The family's like learning how to make life easier for Edward. Um, the dad, Bill, is getting Edward Edward drunk down in the basement. Mm-hmm. And Edward's like obviously struggling to pick up the cup, and Jim recognizes that this is an issue, and without really giving it a second thought just puts a straw on the cup. Mm-hmm. So Edward's no longer disabled in that moment. Mm-hmm. He is now able to partake in drinking alcohol. Um, so the family is working to make life more accessible for Edward. In fact, the family are the only people who seem to understand that he is not an object for their own amusement, which mm-hmm. is the issue with inspiration and disability porn. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, there the may neighbor, have the creepy neighbor. Oh, the super creepy neighbor who, like, sexually assaults him? Yes. Yeah. Super problematic, especially since we can tell that Edward is, even though he's a robot and does not age, like, there's something very innocent about him. Uh Uh-huh. And she is certainly taking advantage. Yeah. Um, And then she later accuses him of sexually assaulting her, which is another issue in itself it's a lot yeah 
Um, but the whole town seems to see him as like this piece of fascination. Like they use him in any way that they can to make themselves feel good, mm-hmm. whether it's sexually or for haircuts or to take care of their lawn. Like Edward is not a person to them. He's not really even an AI to them. He is just this thing that they can look at without any complex thoughts or emotions, which we recognize as not his reality. Um, there may have still been a touch of saviorism with the family that does like take him from the castle mm-hmm. because ultimately like he seemed to be okay at the castle. He was isolated and alone Um, but he had his gardens and like, he had things that he obviously cared about there. And she never really there. I mean, he doesn't really communicate. No. So how would she have known? Yeah. How do you know whether or not he wanted to go with you other than he has scissors for hands and could have very easily stopped her if he didn't want to go. But I never thought about that. Well, I think about that a lot with adoption. Like often we take kids from situations and then we put them in a new situation that may or may not be better for them. Mm -hmm. Um, So I was like trying to kind of go down an adoption narrative with Edward Scissorhands Mm -hmm. and ultimately decided that the disability angle was more relevant Mm -hmm. um, because it is kind of an allegory for disabilities. Mm -hmm. But I think there is definitely an adoption angle here. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. specifically not asking kids' consent and judging the place where a child or family is living um, because we do criminalize uh, poverty so mm-hmm. severely that often kids are actually fine living in a loving and safe home, even if they don't have, you know, the electricity turned on. Or, you know, consistent, they may not consistently be paying their gas bill, but their physical needs are being met. They can, they're still getting food, and yet we'll go in and remove the kids and perpetuate trauma, Mm -hmm. which is a whole other conversation Mm -hmm. that I'm just super passionate about. Anyways, um, back to disabilities. Even Peg, who is probably the most accepting character of him or most, most accepting of Edward. Mm -hmm. Um, Like she still tries multiple times throughout the movies to cover his scars and to make him more presentable. At one point she like puts so much makeup on him. He almost looks purple and like kind of matches some of the houses. (laughs) Yeah. And like, it's a very clear parallel there, like fitting in, but still having muted colors. Um, They understand him so poorly, like as a community, that they don't even really realize that it's not a doctor that he needs. Like everyone's like, oh, I've got a doctor who could help you with your hand situation or Mm -hmm. help with your scars. But no one seems to realize that he's artificially made, like he's a robot. He's a piece of artificial intelligence. He needs an engineer. He doesn't Mm -hmm. need a doctor. Yeah. even his inventor is attempting to teach him how to fit in through these lessons on avoiding humiliation. So even the person that put him together doesn't really understand him, which I think is also fascinating. 
especially when we start thinking about how this is true for individuals with autism spectrum disorders. So even parents of children who've been diagnosed with autism will still often try to like teach their kids how to fit into these boxes without realizing that their kid is just wired different. Um, So it's not just other people who are trying to make kids conform or make people conform. Often it starts in your own family. Um, Edward seems to display some of the more common like characteristics of people who've been diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder, including difficulties in socializing, neutral facial expression, self-isolation. He's very literal in the way that he thinks and understands and observes the world. Um, He's minimally verbal and he gets hyper fixated on his special interests, which for him are art mm-hmm. and creation. Um, in fact, he genuinely appears made for this work, which I think is a somewhat outdated, but still in many ways relevant way of thinking about autism spectrum disorders is while not everything will be interesting to someone who's autistic their special interest in a lot of ways was is something that they're really good at and mm, they could excel, they excel. at mm-hmm. and we don't teach in a way that allows special interests to blossom mm-hmm. we teach in a way that all kids need to know these same 50 things in order to graduate from high school regardless of what you're good at mm-hmm. so um Edward is also highly compassionate and has these deep feelings, but people in the suburb fail to understand him on this level because he's not able to communicate as clearly or as easily or with the same social conscience. Um, One article points out that Edward's hands are a physical disability. They make everyday activities an active struggle. At a metaphorical level, they symbolize his subconscious awareness and inability to connect with others edward startles others merely by waving he cuts himself and others through innocent attempts at communication Mm -hmm. and if that's not a powerful like metaphor Mm -hmm. for what it's like for someone who's trying to communicate and just feels like they're failing yeah like that's yeah that's good shit Mm mm-hmm perhaps one of the reasons that this film resonated with me so deeply was this universal experience of not fitting in, but trying to fit in. So LGBTQ plus folks, people with disabilities, those who have experienced trauma, all have this experience of being forced or coerced into fitting into these roles when it just doesn't work. We're seen as the villains or the broken ones. And in many ways, you could see Edward Scissorhands as an allegory for other developmental disorders and mental illnesses like ADHD, social anxiety, major depressive disorder. Uh, quote, stories need to be told from underrepresented perspectives like Edwards. In many ways, the film is a universal love letter to outsiders and those who are born different. This is why this unique take on the monster movie is watched, studied, and beloved by so many cinema goers. And there's really just so much more we can talk about here. Isolation and saviorism, morality, Artificial intelligence, the loss of innocence. Don't even get me started on artificial intelligence. (laughs) I knew that that would be a hot topic for you. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Also, I think every, you know, uh, I think Edward is a very relatable character. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and I think people really cling to him because of his own experiences and people feeling like they don't fit in, um, feeling like they're trying to be or being forced to fit into a box. Well, and I'm thinking about who you and I were in high school. Like, we didn't know each other, obviously. Mm -hmm. But we were part of these crowds of people who didn't fit in. And there are some people that high school worked really well for. Mm -hmm. We were not those people. No, those are, they're all selling MLM (laughs) some things right now. All those people. They absolutely are. Um, Some Avon, perhaps. Yeah, they were... (laughs) Oh, how far down the stereotyping rabbit hole do I want to get here? They were all the cheerleaders, all the drill teamers. That's not true. A lot of it's true, though. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, that's a good point, though. I mean, I think part of of being in suburbia is your situation is different. Like, you're not living in poverty. Your safety is usually not in danger. The, The hurt that you feel is based on your family unit and yeah uh it's a much more privileged environment um so the fact that it's set in the suburbs the fact that mm-hmm. there's somebody coming in from outside i think it's just like how every yeah you know panic at the disco listening suburban teenage <laughs> person feels if you listen to good charlotte you might relate to edward scissorhands exactly yeah um i think it's also Oh, I lost my train of thought. Also, I love Panic at the Disco. (laughs) I do, too. We are not knocking Panic at the Disco. Um, So I want to end with a thought on Snow. because President Snow? President John Snow. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) Let me just cross as many movies off this episode as possible. Um, So... Also, I'm so sorry. You know that um, <laughs> the guy that plays President Snow in um, Hunger Games in the Hunger Games, he does the um, Simply Orange commercials. Does he really? Yeah, Simply Orange. <laughs> <laughs> just think, just like next time. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, sponsored by Simply Orange. Sponsored by Simply Orange. I was trying to come up with something, but my brain's working too slow. (laughs) I understand. Okay. So what is interesting about Snow is that the movie kind of starts out with Kim, who is now a grandma, and her granddaughter's laying in the bed, and granddaughter asks where Snow comes from. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we don't hear about Snow for the entire movie until like the last 30 seconds where they're like, by the way, here's a snow thing again. So what's interesting about this is first, it reminds me of the princess bride. Uh Uh-huh. Second. I was um, just thinking that. Really? This movie reminds me of so many other movies. Yeah. Uh, It's like a grab bag of. Exactly. Yeah. Memories. Yeah. 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 My notes literally say a la princess bride. Kim's granddaughter asks about snow and wants to hear the story. Kim says, quote, before he came down here, it never snowed. And afterwards, it did. I don't think it would be snowing now if he weren't still out there. Sometimes you can still catch me dancing in it. Mm-hmm. End quote. Which reminds me of fried green tomatoes. What part? 
Sometimes you can still catch me dancing in it. Oh, sometimes you can still see her. Yeah. Maybe you'll catch a glimpse of her. Yeah. I mean, truly, every movie reference I can think of fits into this movie somehow. Hmm. But why, though? So one article points out, quote, although the neighborhood ultimately rejects Edward, exiling him back to the isolated mansion, he continues to bring joy to the residents that turned on him. Even though his garden sculptures and haircuts are no longer visual markers of the neighborhood, reflecting the short-term positive change that he brought through exposing them to diversity, his legacy lives on. The snowfall is a constant reminder of Edward's subconscious, long-term impact on the changing social constructs of the community. Also, the snow gives the movie the feel of like taking place within a snow globe. Mm-hmm. and having Which that- is such a good metaphor for role. For real, for real. For real, real, not for play, play. <laughs> the fairy tale quality while also contrasting the darker subject of the film and the darker themes of the film. So lastly, why is this a cult film? It did really well in the box office, which is not normally something we see for um, cult films. However, I think what makes this a cult classic is the following the themes and the people who love this movie deeply love it. Mm-hmm. Like there are so many articles dedicated to analyzing each character, dedicated to analyzing the town and like all these different pieces of it. And I think the ownership that people feel over the movie is what makes this one feel like a cult classic to me. I agree. And I think I'm, I would be surprised if we didn't cover another Tim Burton movie at some point. A thousand percent. He just has that niche kind of style. And I think people really, it resonates with people. Yeah, I agree. I agree wholeheartedly. Great job. Um, You know, I hadn't seen this one in a long time. So it was nice to revisit and everything that you said totally makes sense. Um, And I think it's also really good and really fun to look at these um all of these films with with a different lens yeah um i think it's important i think it's good to develop new memories and new perspectives surrounding all of these films that we're talking about which we've probably seen a hundred times oh absolutely i'm still thinking about fight club (laughs) i know fight club came up for me the other day too um actually fight club i think came up while i was researching this movie Mm. they were talking about Oh, what was it? To me, it's just like the little idiosyncrasies. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just so many little Easter eggs. Oh, totally. I think they were also talking about, like, deconstructing the social expectations, mm-hmm. which is very much a theme in Fight Club, yep. and it's also a theme here. Yeah. So, s- social isolation, mental health. There's a lot of... There's overlap with this movie, and I can't think of a movie that this movie does not overlap with. Another thing I just thought of is that, you know, Edward comes in, he's like the new guy in town, everybody takes what they need from him, uses him up, kind of thing, and then kind of tosses him to the side. And villainizes him. And villainizes them when they're done, and I think that that's also relatable Yeah, to, you know, A lot of lived experiences, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, well, let's take a quick break and then we'll jump into the cult for today. Perfect.
we're back. All right. I am excited that we're mixing it up. It feels good in my heart. It does. My body is ready. My heart is ready. My heart might be a cookie. (laughs) Oh, well, prep your body because we're going to be talking a little bit about the body today. I am going to be talking about the Remnant Fellowship Church. Remnants of the Remnant cookies. Yes. Leaving crumbs. Exactly. Crumbs Fellowship Church. And that's the story of how I met Time your mother. Intersections. <laughs> okay, sorry, continue. All right, the main character of our story today, her name is Gwen Shamblin. She was born on February 18th, 1955, and grew up as a member of the Church of Christ. Uh, so, Church of Christ, like Latter day Saints? Nope, just the Church of Christ. Cool. That's the Church of Jesus Christ. Got it. Of Latter-day Saints. Right. This is the Church of Jesus's brother. Just... Jesus Christ. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) All right. (laughs) I'm going to let you get through your notes at some point. (laughs) A little background on the Church of Christ. Um, Members believe that they interpret the Bible literally... Um, they believe that it is a literal depiction of history and its words are like close to interpretation. Very black and white. It is what it is. Mm-hmm. So much more conservative than the majority of Christian sex and stuff today. Right. Even though they still, ex- the Church of Christ is still like out there today. Interestingly, they baptize. Um, they only baptize by full immersion. They don't do like the bird bath thing. Okay. They just like dunk you. That's the only way they do it. I was given three options. So. Really? Mm-hmm. Yep. That's good to have a choice. Mm-hmm. I did not go with the full immersion. Yeah. That's Something about having water in my ears just sure. gross to sure. me. Sure. Sure. Um, acapella is the only music in their church. There's like no instruments, which I thought was fascinating. So it's a very, it was a very strict upbringing. They have very unique, um, laws within this church. Women are usually, you know, seen and not heard. They even really don't allow women to be seen speaking in public, like, public speaking and also like praying publicly it's, uh-huh. it's very conservative so that's that's kind of her religious bringing in religious background something that we'll kind of come back to is that a lot of times when people grow up in an environment they either accept it completely run with it that's like their their standard or they tend to like rebel against it um, and she's a very interesting shrimp basket combo of the two So, Gwen Shamblin grew up to attend the University of Tennessee, and she earned her degree in dietetics, which I believe now is called nutrition. Yeah, that Mm -hmm. sounds right. So, for five years, she worked at the Memphis State University as a registered dietitian. She then moved on to work in the Tennessee Department of Health for another five years. And all during this time, she uh, was married to David Shamblin. And they had two children together. So let's flash forward to 1980. Okay. Okay. Gwen began to reflect on her time as a nutrition student and her work in the health field and began to ask herself, 
why after learning about genetic, metabolic, and behavioral reasons were some people able to overcome those obstacles and others weren't as far as weight loss? Oh, okay. Well, she believed that she found the answer uh, and she founded something called the Way Down Workshop in 1986. The Way Down Workshop had no food restrictions, no calorie counting, no regular weigh-ins. Well, I love that. So how does it work? Gwen preached portion control. And when you wanted to eat outside of hunger, you turned to God and pray. Of course. Naturally. Right. As one does. One of her most famous statements is, quote, what I do in this program is to teach people how to stop bowing down to the refrigerator and how to bow back down to him, to God. Still lots of bowing. Mm-hmm. Hard on the knees. So she does go off this idea that like nothing is unholy. So that's why she doesn't limit, you know, what you can have. It's basically just about portion control. Okay. Revolutionary. Um, so it was an independent program that other churches could participate in. So slowly the program began to spread throughout the Southern United States and people were seeing results. Um, the program consisted of seminars, which lasted about 12 weeks. Gwen included with these seminars, some literature and audio content that was also available for purchase. By 1994, the Way Down Workshop had spread to Europe and was in almost 600 churches in 35 U.S. states. In 1996, 5,000 churches were participating and they were in 49 states. Wow. I don't know what the, what do you think the 50th state was? Alaska, for sure. Alaska? I'm thinking Hawaii. Maybe Hawaii. It's a 50-50. It's definitely not like Texas. (laughs) I was going to say, otherwise it's going to be somewhere completely random like West Virginia because the news never got there. No, West Virginia for sure participated. Oh, probably. Maybe it was like, I don't know. Maybe Vermont. Vermont? You know who it was? It was Vermont. You think so? They don't allow bulletin boards or uh, not bulletin boards, billboards. They're certainly not allowing interesting they don't allow billboards Mm-mm. no billboards in the whole state why uh because they're not pretty they interfere with the natural landscape see that's what somebody with a real natural landscape gets to say <laughs> you know what i mean we have to endure like a million mcdonald's a on the million Blue Ridge Parkway. mcdonald's things yeah Damn. yeah uh alternatively it could have been like rhode island because they're too i small. was gonna say delaware oh it's also super small. Yeah. Also my home state. Represent. <laughs> <laughs> um, in 1997, Gwen published her book called The Way Down Diet, which of course told readers how to avoid overeating through God. During this time, she appeared on various media outlets, including, including The View and Dateline Australia, The Today Show, Larry King Live, and The Early Show. She was also published in Good Housekeeping and Women's Day. Nice. Um, so I'm thinking about the name. Mm-hmm. Way Down. The Way Down Workshop. 
Way Down Workshop. So if you're a Christian organization, which they say pray to God as part of their book. So mm-hmm. this Christian. is a faith-based program. Cool. Um, shouldn't it be like the way up rather than the way down? Well, it's a way like W-E-I-G-H. I know, but I still feel like it. someone didn't think it through. It should have should never have gotten past the rewrites. Gotcha. Mrs. Couch level. Exactly. Okay. All yeah. right. Yeah. That's how I feel about it is I don't know that I would have picked it up and been like, let me find Jesus on the way down. On the way down. <laughs> I saw you and you saved me from eating this hamburger. So all of this to say she was a big fucking deal. So each year she would host this huge seminar that was the Way Down Workshop Seminar. It was a way for people who were participating across the country to come and mingle. And she would release new content. And it was, you know, fun. Everybody was looking forward to it. In the seminar in 1999, she revealed a new thought process and belief system that would have members wanting to get out immediately. Not all of them, because then the story would be over. Right. But a lot of them. So in order for this all to make sense, let's talk about the Trinity. Oh, okay. The Trinity, Mm -hmm. which is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I got really excited for a second. I thought we were going to be talking about witches. No. I was like, witches and what are the other two? Werewolves and ghosts? Mm -hmm. Oh my. But then you followed it up with the actual Trinity. Nope. This is the OG. Okay. So... These are each divine beings within the Christian church that basically represent God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit, Mm -hmm. all equally important individuals. And even though the Holy Ghost or Holy Spirit does not have a physical body, all all three of the Trinity represent beings that make up the Christian faith basis. The Holy Spirit is said to be like what remains with us today or with Christians today, with them today, um, Jesus and and uh, God are obviously. Jesus had a physical body. We know that, right? We right. know that whole thing. Um, he may have ended up in America after the second resurrection. That's true. Speculation. Um, anyway, the Holy Spirit is 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 honestly one of the ones that gets overlooked a lot of times Mm -hmm. Um, but it is going to be the one that we're talking about today so what does gwen do in the 1999 way down workshop seminar she denies the trinity (gasps) so she says that god is above the other two the son and the holy spirit instead of all three being equal okay well this really pissed off evangelicals and a lot of other devout christians because it's not something it's heresy essentially like you just can't it's it's against the rules so people started slowly uh dropping uh dropping out of the workshop uh people were sending back literature and books and it was just like not a great time for her Um, Except for that she uses this announcement to basically announce that she was going to be starting her own church. In 1999, Remnant Fellowship Church was founded in Franklin, Tennessee. And that's her church. 
So let's talk about what the word remnant means. Okay? Okay. So it refers to a group of people who stay faithful to God and so are saved by him. It's like the few the few that got it right, the few that did everything right that were that were faithful. It's and were the saved. crumbs that are left on the plate that you save for later. <laughs> right? <laughs> So it appears, this term appears in the Old Testament, but the only time it's used in the New Testament is in the book of Revelations, where they refer to 144,000 people being saved, which, if you would recall, is the same number that was thrown at, thrown out in the God Has One cult. Oh, yeah. So I finally figured out where it came from, and it's from the book of Revelations. Oh, okay. So it comes, it refers to like the tribes of the children of Israel, um, and it is like the number of people that are going to be saved. I think that um, Presbyterians believe that as well. And maybe Jehovah's Witness? Well, it's in Revelation. So if you believe in Revelations, then you could very well believe in this. Possibly. But then also, it just really depends. It really depends because a lot of people are like anybody who believes is saved. So I just feel like that's a really small number given how many humans have existed on Earth. So, but it's also like the end of days. Okay. Yeah. Sure. So it's interesting that she uses this term in a modern church. You well, know, it's kind clearly of. Clearly, she sees herself as one of these. Well, yes. And yes. Um, she's like the main speaker, like the main pastor of this church. But, you know, having a, a church with the word remnant in the title to me, would assume that it, they would be preaching, like, end of times. Can I tell you that, so, like, remnants, I think about things very literally sometimes. And so, hearing remnants church, I hear, like, leftover church, mm-hmm. because remnants means leftovers. There's a church in Burlington called the Holy Comforter. Oh, my God. And I think it's the funniest name ever, but... Like, the first time I started chuckling about it, no one got it. And I was just like, well, okay. Maybe I'm the only one who thinks this way. I would love to get a secret little joy of mine to find these. I want to use my 25% off Bed Bath & Beyond coupon. (laughs) (laughs) At the Holy Comforter. And get me one. Yeah. I'll have the Holy Comforter because you have the weighted blanket. That sounds fair. Fair is fair, yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'm picking up what you're putting down. Oh, you smell what I'm stepping in. Oh, I just had, um, <laughs> oh, I just am, am getting tickled because I I just thought of that question I love to ask about the would you rather. Yeah, the carrot or the, the milk. Yeah, so let me just, let me pitch this really quick. This is totally unrelated. Whenever you're in a setting where you're like wanting to get to know people in the crowd, you ask these, these questions about would you rather. Did you ask this over the weekend no okay continue so the first one is would you rather have a baby carrot stuck to your face forever inoperable just baby carrot Mm -hmm. or every time you get aroused you have a mouthful of milk it's the baby carrot for me yeah every normally say baby carrot yeah I don't remember why that was relevant, but that's where my brain went. Holy comforter. Holy comforter. Weighted blanket. Mouthful of milk. Mouthful of milk. 
Okay, so while she is opening her church, she is still running the uh, Way Down Workshop, and she employed um, a staff of people who were working for her. And so this is the first time she gets involved with the law. Um, There was a lawsuit filed by five of her uh, previous employees Mm -hmm. stating that they left um, because they were required as a condition of their employment to attend her church. During her deposition for this lawsuit, she was recorded saying this, quote, When people were in prison camps and ate less, they lost weight. All of them. End quote. What? The lawyer says, quote, Surely you're not making a comparison between forced starvation of a population and middle-class American eating habits. She says, quote, I have been for 15 years, and a lot of people have responded. End quote. What? Yikes. Yikes. Double yeah. yikes. Yes. We are, we, are, we are at the, you know, when the roller coaster is, like, going up, we're, like, uh-huh. reaching the top here. Uh-huh. If it looks like a cult and it sounds like a cult, mm-hmm. it might be a cult. You can't go through it. You can't go mm-hmm. under it. Yeah. Yeah. Question. Do you think she would have picked the carrot on the face or the milk in the mouth? She would have picked the milk in the mouth. I think so, too. Because she is a vain woman. Yep. Yep. And because we also want nothing to do with her. So we need to pick the op. She would have to pick the opposite of what. Also, I just don't. You know what? I'm not going to speculate on anybody's sexual anything. <laughs> How would we get there? I'm thinking, well, the mouthful of milk. Just have it. In this situation, it only happened when you were aroused. And I was just thinking about maybe that she wasn't. So within the church, uh, she was still preaching the way down workshop rhetoric, as well as self-discipline. So, according to ex-members, quote, the faster you lose, the holier you are. It's also about obedience um, and that, like, she is delivering this message. She's, like, a divine person. She has, like, a right-hand, you know, discussion with God. That sentence didn't make sense, but you know what I'm saying. Yeah. So, that uh, she's kind of, like, building herself up to be... Somebody perceived as very important within this church. So, what's next for Gwen? So, although she previously had preached obedience, um, she defied her own teachings and ended up divorcing her husband. Shortly after a she divorced, a new man entered the picture named Joe Lara. Joe had been pursuing a career in country music, also acting. Hmm. He had a lot, a lot of hobbies, uh, a lot of career, you know, paths. aspirations. Yep. Um, so that's what he was doing before he met Gwen. And he was now husband to a church leader. Good for him. They got Working married very quickly. Yeah. And within the church, the idea of this discipline didn't end with yourself. It also referred to your family and your children. What's unique about this church is that there wasn't a separate Sunday school class like the kids sat in the big church the sermon with the adults um i bet they hated that yeah so i kind of love it though because i think i think that's a great like idea in theory but i think it also like puts like pressure on the parents because kids just like don't sit still kids don't want to sit still through a long service like that kids shouldn't be expected to as someone who has been to a lot of churches like the children's 
piece was always the best part. Yeah. And they do have like, um, like if your kids are under a certain age, they are, there's like a nursery kind of thing. So they, they do have that. So physical discipline was preached in the church to keep children obedient. A member reported that a daycare provider who was also a member sent a child home with bruises on her legs from a wooden spoon because she was, quote, wiggling during a diaper change. I'm sorry. Show me a child who doesn't wiggle during a diaper change. The fact that this kid is wearing a diaper means they're too fucking young to be spanked. With a wooden spoon? With a wooden spoon. What? Yes. The community all, you know, shared that this belief and it was really like a tight-knit community and they did band together when uh, a member of the church's infant child died of SIDS. The child belonged to Joseph Smith Sr. and Sonia Smith. Joseph Smith Jr., who was um, not the child that died from SIDS, but the that child's older sibling. Uh-huh was apparently um, having some some struggles. Mm-hmm. Um, he was hiding knives under his bed, and he was threatening to kill members of his family, um, harming his younger brother. The parents participated in the disciplinary style that was approved by Gwen and the church. And parents of little Joseph, it is set, it is... It has been determined, quote, routinely disciplined their son by beating him with glue sticks, belts, and heated coat hangers, locking him in confined spaces for extended periods of time, and tying his hands with rope. Mrs. Smith told police that she was normally, that she normally gave the children their whippings in increments of 10 blows each, and that Joseph had gotten several of those whippings sessions on the day of his death. The police reported that Smith that the Smiths locked Joseph in his room to pray to a picture of Jesus on the ceiling and in a closet for days and even weeks. He was given only a bucket for a toilet. An older child sometimes held Joseph down while his parents beat him with implements. During the day on October 8th, 2003, Joseph Joseph disciplined Joseph Jr. several times, striking him repeatedly with a foot-long glue stick. County medical examiners concluded that eight-year-old Joseph Smith died as a result of, quote, acute and chronic abuse. Joseph died just 11 weeks after the sudden death of of his younger sibling, which was said to be SIDS. Sonia had participated in a seminar Oh, end quote. Um, Sonia had participated in a seminar that Gwen had held the year before the death of her son to ask advice about how to discipline her children. And here is a quote from that interaction. Gwen says, you have four children. Go ahead, Sonia. Sonia says, well, first, I wanted to thank you. Last week, my seven-year-old, he was going through some changes. He was very destructive. I did exactly what Ted told me to do. Ted was like a a higher uh, Mm -hmm. member of the church to spank him on the back of his thighs, take everything out of his room and lock him in there from Friday until Monday and left him in the room with his Bible. 
And that's just from obeying, setting those boundaries, making it clear, and just following God's lead. The church paid for the defense for those members that were sentenced in 2007 to life plus 30 years in prison. Good. Yeah. Yeah. So even after... um, even after they were sentenced, um, the church was like adamantly, you know, trying to get uh, the convictions overturned. Um, it is also um, important to note that her new husband, her new husband, Joe, had a daughter who Joe and his ex-wife had this like really terrible divorced and divorce and Joe did claim that his wife, his ex-wife had sexually assaulted their young daughter, which was since um, proved to be false. Um, There was no evidence of it, but um, just interesting and, and terrible. Yeah. Behavior. Yeah. Um, Yeah. He's not, he's not like, like there there is a documentary on HBO about this if you're interested um and watching it th- a lot of it follows um Joe's ex-wife and you know her her struggles with having a daughter that's being raised in this church and you know the fact that he was basically a performer who like never really had like a, yeah. an actual job and just kind of went from girlfriend to girlfriend. And then basically, you know, she was saying he'd been cast in like the biggest role of his life being, you know, the husband to this mega church leader. Yeah. Yeah. So. Wow. Uh, How what an interesting evolution to go from like being raised in a really conservative church to becoming a nutritionist and like feeling like you may be onto something with this Mm -hmm. really skewed sense of what people need to do to lose weight. Yeah. Despite having a degree in nutrition Mm -hmm. um, to going back to your church roots. How the hell do you get to the place of telling people to beat their children? Mm hmm. Yeah. It's all about um it's all about discipline control and, and control. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And authority. And the the authority and the direction and redirection were like really big in the church. Like gender roles also. And according to Gwen, like the line to God goes like child to parent to spouse to boss to God. You know, you gotta go through all of these um you know, steps, all these other people, all these authoritarian figures to get to God. So, according to an ex-member, if Gwen said that the man was the head of the household, you didn't question it, um, you did what you were told to do, or you would go to what they called council, which was like upper members of the church, kind of like a panel. Um, And these counseling sessions weren't really counseling. It was more like, um, 
it, it was not counseling. These are not right. mental health professionals. Right. It was it was like these are the things you need to do in order to to right this wrong. Um, you know, you do ten Hail Marys and you drink three Bloody Marys, kind of thing. And then, <laughs> so within this like authority lens. Um, it's natural that she would trust her husband, who I will also let you know was a pilot. Oh, the actor and country mm-hmm. singer was also a pilot. Correct. Okay. Yes. You're right. He does have a lot of hobbies. He sure does. They sound like expensive hobbies for someone that I haven't heard has a job yet. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Um, so, uh, plot twist on May 29th, two thousand. One, Gwen and her husband and five other church members were killed in a plane crash where her husband, Joe, was piloting the plane. Damn. All right. That is a plot twist. (laughs) Quote, an NTSB preliminary report on the accident stated that the crash occurred in instrument. You're going to have to help me out with this. Yeah, I gotcha. Instrument meteorological conditions. That the mm-hmm. weather was overcast with a visibility of 10 miles and the lowest ceiling were at 1,300 feet above the ground level. The pilot held a commercial pilot certificate with an instrument rating, which was most recent FAA second class medical certificate being issued on with his most recent FAA second class medical certificate being issued on November 12th, 2019. After takeoff, Radar returns show the airplane made a series of heading changes along with several climbs and descents before it entered a steep descending left turn with the airplane impacting a shallow section of Percy Priest Lake about two to eight feet deep. What what does any of that mean? Sure. So what that basically means is that... The it was kind of an overcast and gloomy day, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so the clouds were at about 1,300 feet. Mm-hmm. So, at that above ground level, so at about 1,200 in a small airplane, which you d- I don't think you said what kind of airplane it was, there were only seven of them in the plane, so it couldn't have been too big. Okay, so, um so they would have already like made their turnout. They would have been able to take off clearly. They probably would have been able to see coming back into land. If it's still 10 statute miles, which is a pretty good amount of distance to be able to see. Mm -hmm. Um, But often what happens with new pilots especially is they get up into clouds and get disoriented. And they stop trusting their compass or their radar. Mm -hmm. And they, because your inner ear will lie to you and be like, you're turning. And then you look or you're your inner ear will tell you you're going flat and level. And then you look and it looks like you've been turning. And rather than trusting that and correcting, you um, either don't correct or you overcorrect. Mm-hmm. But it's all it all has to do with what you see not matching what your brain and body are telling you because this shift can be really subtle. I bet. So um, what probably happened was that he didn't realize he was climbing he didn't realize he was descending he wasn't looking at the gauges and then before he knew it he was completely like out of sorts Mm -hmm. um often like sometimes people will get vertigo while they're flying and like feel really dizzy and 
getting and just like I feel, yeah i feel like you hit it like the easiest way for me to understand is like you just feel disoriented yeah yeah you're operating a very well and it's because you don't have a horizon Mm -hmm. so your inner ear doesn't pick up subtle changes over time the depth right so like if um your compass says that you've turned this far and then you go to turn back or you don't turn back at all and like it just very quickly becomes unmanageable so trust the compass trust your trust your gauges unless you have a reason not to um also being an instrument commercial pilot instrument rated commercial commercial pilot means that he probably had a good number of hours i was gonna say you're you're working towards your instrument license i am working towards my instrument and that's the thing that you practice you practice like going into the clouds you Mm -hmm. practice wearing um these fog goggles so all you can see is your instruments and you have to learn to trust them yeah so it's not a thing you typically see with people who are past their like 500 hour mark Mm -hmm. like the first 500 hours pilots still kind of have no idea what they're doing (laughs) um and that's when the most accidents happen but experienced pilots i mean anyone can get disoriented Mm -hmm. but it's just more rare yeah oh so that's basically what that means yeah and then they landed in shallow water yeah um you can land in water and be safe but you've got to do it nose up and it sounds like they did it nose down yeah yeah sudden the sudden stop is what kills you right the impact absolutely so after that um you know the leader of their church you know has has passed away as well as like a lot of other like important leaders within the church so after gwen's death her daughter took over as leader of the church and when you see videos of her talking it's like gwen is standing right there like the cadence their voice it's uh, it's so it's so similar creepy so similar so like i said there is um an hbo documentary if you're interested and it is called the way well, it's called the way down hbo documentary and it's available if you want to see it um but i did a little bit of research on the remnant fellowship website to see what they had to say about any of it all of it so i'm gonna read you a couple things here so the remnant fellowship and this is coming straight off their website Remnant Fellowship categorically denies the absurd deformatory statements and accusations made in this documentary, yet another another Hollywood attack on religion. Over the past 20 years, countless celebrities and public figures have had to endure allegations of sexual abuse, eating disorders, sexual abuse, and more. While many of these situations might be accurate, there are definitely situations where people are falsely accused. In today's society, everyone should be highly discerning regarding anything they see on any media. We insist that the allegations made against our church are completely false and defamatory? Defamatory. There's no L. Defamatory. We do not body shame or bully anyone, as we know that God created all of us uniquely with different sizes, shapes, and weights. We also do not approach anyone about weight, but we help those who approach us wanting help. 
Otis Rickman, a pulmonary and critical care physician who attends Remnant, sums this up well. Quote, everybody's different. God made all of us different. We have big, sturdy, we have big, sturdy, muscular people. We have thin, wispy people. We have all kinds of people. End quote. Really he sounds really well spoken. Getting into the weeds, yeah. <laughs> um, when you put it like that, who can argue? And then basically the rest of the rest of the page is like, you know, testimonials about the church. You know, they're they're feeling some heat, obviously, because HBO made a documentary about them. Um, so I did also within the um, within the documentary they discuss like one particular. Uh, couple whose daughter, the daughter was basically just like a normal, you know, other type of Christian and then started dating a boy who was in Remnant Fellowship. He then converted her. They have an estranged relationship with her parents now. Mm. Um, And her family very much feels like the church is a cult. So, I mean, it sounds like a cult to me. Yeah, so that is the story of Remnant Fellowship. Excellent job. Oh, so many things to unpack. I know. I'm thinking a little bit about intersections. Um, and just, I guess we can dive right into it. Yeah. Um, I think the one that stands out to me is, like, conformity and trying to force people into um, the society that you envision. Like with the Way Down workshop? Yeah, Mm -hmm. like they're telling people how to lose weight. They're trying to get them all to treat their children the same way. Like they're, it's very Mm -hmm. community-based for better or worse. Like they defend each other. They bail each other out of jail. Yeah, Um, and within any communities, you're going to like develop standards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that sounds similar to the suburbia Mm -hmm. of Edward Scissorhands with everyone kind of fitting into this role and these expectations. And you think for the collective, everyone needs to fit in. Everyone needs to have the same car and the same color schemes and all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's no room for deviation. Right, right. And and the Edward Scissorhands example is like a much more like outward display of those ideologies and like those expectations and then it seems like i mean obviously religion is much more personal although it is very outward as far as like the weight on workshop if your church is based on a program related to weight loss that's going to be a center yeah of what you're known for i'm sure well it also sounds like there's little deviation for thought in the church which i think is one of the premises around cults is everyone kind of thinks the same way and believes the same things mm-hmm. um, yeah. because they're indoctrinated to think and believe those things. Yeah. And it is interesting, like the glue stick specific example. Yeah. A long glue stick. It's just a very unique, it's uh, random, random item. And it was consistently brought up in a bunch of different places. I wonder why, like, were they also super crafty or? Of course, these white women were crafty. Are you kidding? <laughs> They're scrapbooking their MLM. That's exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah. So, but absolutely, I think so. Yeah, I think uh, that and saviorism and morality and loss of innocence. Mm. Oh, she lost. Link ups there. She is lost. 
Well, well done, my friend. What a good um, kind of mixing it up this week. Yeah. Feels good to do something different. I agree. We should do this again occasionally. I would love that. Makes my heart happy. Mine too. Um, if you want to pick a topic for us, head on over to patreon.com. Search for us. We're under podcast without an audience. Patreon people have access to our famous secret pasta recipe, um, as well as our close friends group on Instagram. Mm-hmm. If you have not left us a review on Apple Podcasts, please do so. It is really the best way to, you know, get the word out about the podcast. Yeah. yeah. If you enjoy, you know, if you enjoy us, let us know. Yep. Absolutely. And we love hearing from you. So send us messages on Instagram or wherever you keep up with us. Um, also, one of my very favorite Patreon exclusives is getting to pick topics for us. And mm-hmm. we're running a little... Uh, no, we're not. We're doing <laughs> great. I just... I we want, have three in the bank. We have three? Mm-hmm. Who do we have? We'll talk about that in a minute. Okay. Um, but yeah, we always are looking for more topic ideas um, and would love to feature our Patreons um, in future episodes. That's right. And we've got some more that are in the pipeline um, for those Patreons who are wondering where their topics are. They're on the way. They might be coming up next week. We'll they see. just might be. We don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you know when we know. Okay. You know that we know that you know. Um, thank you guys so much for listening and for supporting us through all of this journey. If you support us, blink twice. And if you're out there, keep listening. Thank you for listening to Podcasts Without an Audience. Find us on social media at Pod Without an Odd. You can find us on Instagram or Facebook. Or find us on the web at podcastwithoutanaudience.com. Shoot us an email at podwithoutanodd at gmail.com. Our cover art is created by an actual angel, Ashley Acevedo. Our music is by Zach Smith and Ted Oliver. Editing by Jacob Beeson. We hope you enjoyed today's episode and all of our nerdy content. Please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to us today. Oh, and check out our Patreon for exclusive content and our pasta recipe. Again, thanks, and keep listening.